photography for sure is the best tool to bring you know that kind of change the awareness the empathy that we all talk about all the time but it's so important how do you think for the other you know the suffering of the other without just looking at it but acting upon it you know one thing that i i, I detest about photography is the voyeuristic image where you look at something and you remain passive and powerless i much prefer the imagery that provokes a response that people do something about it so that's actually been my life's course much of it has been motivated by that sense that we have to look we have to feel and we have to respond Welcome to the Arts for Society podcast, where we talk about how art can bring change to society. This is Anne and Aude. Today, we're proud to interview two guests who will share their expertise on the power of photography, Pauline Vermar and Fred Richen. Pauline Vermar is a French photography curator and the cultural director of Magnum Photos in New York. Magnum Photos is a major photographer's cooperative, which was created by the great Henri Cartier-Bresson, Robert Capa, George Roger, and David Seymour in 1947, following the aftermath of World War II. It represents some of the world's most renowned photographers with a view to chronicling global events, people, places, and culture with a powerful narrative. Before joining Magnum in 2017, Pauline Vermar was a curator at the International Center of Photography, or ICP, and at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. She also worked at the Fondation Henri Cartier-Bresson in Paris. She recently participated in Une Histoire Mondiale des Femmes Photographes, a book celebrating the contributions of women to the medium of photography, spotlighting 300 female photographers from around the world. Pauline sits on the board of the Soul Lighter Foundation as well as the Catherine Leroy Fund, together with our other guests, Fred Richin. Fred Richin is an American writer, thinker, teacher, editor, and curator, with a particular emphasis on image-based media and social justice. He is Dean Emeritus of the International Center of Photography, or ICP, in New York. Fred has been writing on digital imaging since 1984. He has published three books on the future of imaging and collaborated with multiple humanitarian organizations on a variety of media initiatives. He was professor of photography and imaging at New York University, where he co-founded the Photography and Human Rights Educational Program in partnership with the Magnum Foundation. Fred was also picture editor of the New York Times Magazine and the co-founder and director of the online publication Pixel Press. More recently, he created the Four Corners Project, an innovative strategy to provide more context and ethical grounding for the photograph online. All right, so hello, Pauline, and hello, Fred. Uh, thank you for being with us today on the Arts of Society podcast. It seems more crucial uh, than ever today to reflect on the power of images and also on our responsibility towards them. So we are very happy to moderate a conversation between the two of you. Uh, during the next 30 minutes or so, we will discuss how photography can help us preserve our collective memory, but also understand our world, enable peace, and ultimately build a better society. Uh, so Pauline and Fred, to start with, we would like to hear you talk about one photograph 
that had a lasting impact on you. Uh, Pauline, what photograph comes to mind? Uh, we would like to ask you to describe that image to us, the context in which you saw it, and uh, tell us in what way the experience was really game-changing uh, for you. You know, uh, it's a very difficult question to answer, I find, because we are so, certainly I was surrounded with so many images growing up. My father was a photographer, amateur photographer, I should say. My, my grandfather was a water um, aquarellist, you know, he did watercolors. And so I was always surrounded with very photograph, you know, many photographs and many lifelike images. But having said that, and also, you know, there are the photos of the family that I hold there and there are the photos of artists that I have been now working around for many years. But there is one image that's a fact, in fact, a cover of a book. Um, and I would say I was at the Gallimard bookshop on Boulevard Raspail. I was studying nearby at the time. And at the time, I was very much um, passionate about Ireland, the South, uh, the Republic of Ireland. And a Lebanese friend who I was studying with had told me about a book called Eureka Street by Robert MacLean Wilson, an Irish Northern Irish writer. And she had told me, oh, if you love Ireland, you have to read this book. And so I went to the Gallimard bookshop and I went and I looked for that book. And and I looked at it and I looked at the back first to look at the story. And, this, you know, it said it was about Northern Ireland. I thought, I don't really have... I really am interested in the South. I don't know if I want to read a book about the North, but then that photograph on the cover that I have here with me, it's a 1018 collection, you know, by Gallimard. Um, the photograph is by um, a man called Christophe Jean um, of the Agence Vue, uh, at least at the time that was in the early 2000s. And this is a photograph of a child walking behind the wall and on the wall uh, it's a very it's a black and white photograph it's very grim and there are tags on the wall and I thought the photograph appealed so much to me I thought I have to read this book I don't care that it's about the north and that started my passion for the north of Ireland in fact that is now the subject of my doctorate um, that I've been you know working on for 15 years in fact since I read the book but I think I would not have read the book had I not had such um you know, had the photograph on the cover not attracted me so much at the time. So I'm grateful for that photograph in many ways. And can you can you explain maybe the then the impact it had on you, not only because you read that book, but why, why was it um, an important uh, turning point maybe in your reading of, of uh, photography? You know, it's a, I, there's a, so it's a, it's a young boy on the cover. And I think there's something like the 400 blows, you know, by Truffaut. There's the sort of, uh, um, you know, élan vital, something that is so human about this photograph. And I don't know, it is. And I think that's what photography is to me. It's so human, I think. And of course, literature is and cinema is. And in fact, I thought that photograph was cinema and was literature. There was something there. There were so many layers. and obviously talk to something in me that maybe I'm not totally conscious of, but um, it's, the, you know, the story. And, and then in turn, the story of Northern Ireland appealed to me for exactly those reasons, you know, the humanity of it. And this is something that Fred and I, uh, Fred Richin and I discuss, you know, almost weekly now is that sort of the human, the human impact of photography in both ways. I mean, what the photograph does to you and, Um, what you can do with a photograph, you know, and I think this is what appeals to me, you know, and why that photograph in particular appealed to me, I think, was the deeply human 
something in the childhood, probably something. I mean, it's a teenager, really. Teenage, I've always been interested in the life of, you know, the young, the young, the youth. I don't know. Maybe this is something. It's funny because I hadn't thought about it until you asked me the question. And there are so many other photographs that I love for other reasons. But there's something there and, you know, that appeals to me for sure. It's interesting to see how a photograph can, uh, as you just said, humanize a historical subject like Ireland and the story of Ireland. Thank you for that, Pauline. And how about you, Fred? Which picture, if you had to pick one, had a lasting impact on you? When I was a child, the way I learned how to read in part was I had to cut out photographs from Life magazine of different uh things that began with the letters. So for example, if we were learning the letter A, I would cut out a photograph of an apple with my little child scissors. And so I was kind of used to looking at imagery as if there was a reality to it, as if it was important, it was part of life, it wasn't somehow distanced. And so in the 1960s, when Don McCullen photographed in Biafra, of the starving children, uh, emaciated, skinny, nothing to eat. It, it was horrific to look at. And to me, then, the world became real. It was like next door. It wasn't all that far away. It, it made it, it seem as if we lived in the same universe together. And the question became for me, how do you live in the same universe? Where's all this suffering? And what do you do about it? And You know, that, the, those images my McCullen led to Médecins Sans Frontières, the, the Doctors Without Borders group being founded. You know, Kushner was in Biafra, and those pictures had a lasting impact. We have to do something about it. And, and I guess the bookend for me was I curated many years later an exhibition of Sebastián Salgado's work. Uh, part of it was in the Sahel region of Africa. And when we showed it at the International Center of Photography, The uh, Médecins Sans Frontières used that exhibit to set up their North American headquarters. So they were able to use those images again, you know, to do something about it. You know, one thing that I, I, I detest about photography is the voyeuristic image where you look at something and you remain passive and powerless. You know, I, I, I much prefer the imagery that provokes a response that people do something about it in the case of suffering, in the case of that kind of pain. So that's actually been my life's course is, you know, I became picture editor of the New York Times magazine. I've done all kinds of different things, but much of it has been motivated by that sense that we have to look, we have to feel, and we have to respond. It's quite interesting that you both picked images of children. In the end, you're both saying that photography is a, really a way to induce feelings, but it shouldn't stop at that. It should also be a way of responding to certain situations. You just said, Fred, that it was important to reuse images to be able to act upon them. And Pauline, you're cultural director of uh, Magnum Photos, and you are surrounded by an impressive amount of archives. So why is it important to you to preserve those archives, and how do you use them today? Um, oh, well, the archive of Magnum, so Magnum was created in 1947, but the, the archive pan, you know, starts really in the 30s when Cartier-Bresson, Shim and Kappa, uh, three of the founders, started 
documenting the world around them, um, including the Spanish Civil War, uh, the rise of the Front Populaire in France, um, and many struggles, of course, the Second World War, um, the aftermath of the war, etc. And these were defining moments for humankind. It was also a defining moment in photography. They invented, um, together with the creation of Magnum Photos, um, they created the idea of the copyright and the idea that the photograph, the photographer was an author who remained uh, the ownership of his images as opposed to the magazines that they were published in before. So there were many revolutions going on at the same time. And I think the greatest revolution that, again, we talk a lot about with Fred Richin these days is that these photographers really wanted to have a role in the societies that they lived in and um, the struggle that humankind was dealing with, not only in their own societies, but everywhere in the world. Um, and so these, these, all their photographs since the 30s to today are documents of our common heritage, right, of history. And these are moments, moments like today, especially, you know, what happened in America, what, ha what is happening in America, everywhere in the world. You think, can't you, you can't move forward and this is also the premise of psychoanalysis, but you can't move forward if you don't look backwards. You cannot make progress if you don't learn from your mistakes. And I think photography is here to remind us all of the mistakes of the past, of what has worked also, but what hasn't worked mostly because we need to fix, you know, we need to fix our societies. It's never going to be perfect. So, of course, there's a bit of an idealism there um, that we shouldn't be fooled by, you know, um, photography, of course, I don't think will change the world just like that. But I think by raising awareness, by teaching the younger generations through the archive, and this is what we're trying to do, for instance, with Matt Black, one of the photographers that Fred Richin interviewed recently, in fact, for the Magnum website, who's working on extreme poverty in the US. How do you, what do you teach, you know, kids in high school here in the US and universities? How can you, with Matt Black's photographs, that are in fact not so, you know, they have been produced in the past seven years. How do you talk about poverty? How do you ask these kids to talk, to think about it and to maybe, you know, do they want to themselves use a camera to express something that matters to them? But, you know, and how do you learn to live together? I mean, photography for sure is the best tool to, to bring, you know, that kind of change, the awareness, the empathy that we all talk about all the time, but it's so important. How do you think for the other, you know, the suffering of the other without just looking at it, but acting upon it? So for me, the archive, the photo archive, magnums and, you know, vernacular photography also, of course, and amateur photography, any kind of photograph that records a moment in time and what happened before us, um, for me, it's, it's of crucial importance. Yeah, and uh, reflecting on, on what Pauline just said about the idea that we all can learn from the mistakes of the past and, and to build a, a better future. Fred, what do you think we can learn today from the history of photography? And also maybe how can we highlight new voices or new perspectives rather than a one-sided history of photography, if I may say? Well, I think first we have to say that the 20th century idea of photography is quite different than the 21st century idea of photography, so that there was an almost an automatic credibility to the image in the 20th century. You know, the camera never lies. If A didn't be there, a photograph is worth a thousand words. 
those kinds of you know somewhat mythologies that grew up around photography as a recording of the visible, what John Berger re- references a quotation from appearances. And I think the 21st century sees that kind of imagery as much more malleable, manipulated, less credible, and there's billions and billions of images all around us all the time, so there's very little hierarchy of a sense of what the front page used to give us. If it's on the front page, this has to be important. We have to focus. You know, The society has to deal with it, discuss it, and there is no front page anymore. So I think I, I wrote a book in 2008 called After Photography, which was premised on the idea really of a paradigm shift that what we're talking about, what we're calling photography is a little bit like the horseless carriage. When we invented the automobile, we didn't know what to call it. So we said it's, you know, it's a carriage without the horse. So we're calling it digital photography. It's, it's photography, but it's digital, but it's really not the same thing at all. So I think in terms of the public sphere of photography, it's quite different than the personal. So I think family photographs you know, will still have enormous meaning to people because they recognize that's my cousin, that's my uncle, that's, you know, and so on. And other members of the family can interpret them and, and could give context and, and there, there's a reliability to it. But I think in the public sphere, like the war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history, there are no iconic photographs from it, which is so different than 20th century models. So I think it's, it's a very, very different thing at this point. So one thing you have to do then is figure out how to make images differently so they have impact. And there's many, many ways of doing that that people are experimenting with, you know, multimedia, interactive media, nonlinear narratives, uh, giving cameras to the people themselves, asking people how they want to be photographed, you know, lots and lots of things. And as you pointed out, you know, also sharing uh, the view, sharing the power, uh, you know, that people from within all, you know, countries have much to say as well as the outsider has much to say you know robert frank the americans is probably the greatest work on the united states by somebody from switzerland but at the same time there are many people within the united states like matt black and others who have much to say as well and i think that's what's happening now is that we're seeing more and more um you know people around the world uh narrating their own stories which is all for the good you know there are many many projects with children uh, in different countries, with refugees, with older people, and so on, representing themselves. So that's all for the good. So it, it's it's quite chaotic at this point. Um, it's not filtered. It's it's ambiguous in many ways. Some of them very good. The growing skepticism, so-called fake news, and so on, is sometimes good because sometimes we accept it too much. You know, it's also terrible because it breaks down the sense of democracy and society. So right now it's it's a revolutionary period. Uh, so to, so to answer your question, you know, there, there's multiple multiple facets uh, of it at this point. Indeed, digital photography has brought massive change to the medium. As you said, it's it's not only a matter of technicality of photography. It's it's also that it's become a much more accessible medium thanks to or because of smartphones now almost anyone anywhere can make a picture and share it widely through social media 
You mentioned some of the chaos that it has entailed. Can you give us a little better understanding of what's going on now between, you know, those photographs that are made by professional photographers and amateur photos and how, you know, we have to look at both of them to be able to make sense of what's going on around us now? Exactly. Um, you know, we, you know, going back to the horseless carriage, we still have horsepower in our cars and we still haven't gotten rid of the horses. It takes a long time to understand the shift in terms of what's going on with social media. The most important imagery of the year, certainly in the United States, was the, the several minute video of the killing of George Floyd done by an amateur, done by a young woman who's been traumatized by what she saw and what she recorded. It's a heavy responsibility to do what she did. You know, when, when I interviewed Peter Van Achtmel, uh, a Magnum photographer recently, who was there at the storming of the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, you know, he pointed out, you know, that many of the most important images will probably be made by social media, by, by amateurs who are there, because there are many, many, many more amateurs than professionals, you know, who do this. And I think there's also something, professionals often work for corporate media and corporate media has certain kinds of expectations of certain kinds of images. They often want the spectacle, you know, they often want the violence, they often want the explosion, you know, they want that kind of very old fashioned idea of what news is, is, is the, the shocking image versus the one that attempts to understand at a deeper level the systems underneath it. What's going on? It's not just the the killing of, of, of a person, but what led us, the society, to get to a point where we could be so racist and fill of hatred? You know, what are the systems going on? So my opinion is that professionals should more and more devote their resources to the longer-term projects, looking at systems underneath, which take considerable amounts of time and understanding and reading and context and interviewing people. And perhaps, you know, video with photography, maybe some augmented reality, virtual reality, statistics, uh, GPS, metadata, and so on. You know, and the amateurs more and more are covering, um, you know, the day-to-day -day as well, but often uh, events that the professional might not be at there. So I think it, it needs a redefinition of the roles of different members of the image-making community. I think there's enormous validity to work by so-called amateurs, citizens, you know, whatever one wants to call them. The, the pictures are often can be very, very powerful. We often don't see them because there are so many of them out there and they're not filtered. And that, you know, when I, I teach, I often say, You know, you guys, maybe you don't all have to become photographers. Maybe you could become what I call meta photographers, meaning the people who curate social media, you know, who look at it, who, who take out from it. What are the images we should be looking at from the societies you come from? Because you know them better than we do. You know, what's actually really going on? Could you do that for us? Because that, that is really a void at this point. We don't have the filtering systems to say, I want to know what's happening in Texas. I want to know what's happening in Bangladesh. I want to know what's happening in different places. Could you please curate social media and give me a sense? Because certainly the professional media does not have the resources to be covering all those things and never will. So I think it's a moment of renaissance in that sense. 
That's interesting um, because this is something that one of the Magnum photographers is, has been doing for a few years now, Thomas Borzak, who was a war photographer embedded in the Georgian army and who, um, at the, with the rise of Instagram, started looking into what was being shared and and some trends and, and made a series of books, little books, um, that he was never able to sell because of copyright issues and also because it was not so much the purpose of it but it's an incredible series um exactly you know because it is what what fred is talking about you know it is about looking into what is there and the the impulse you know what do you share how do you share what are the the and there's a darkness also of course behind this sometimes Sometimes there's a lightness, like that Bernie Sanders meme yesterday was hilarious, you know, to see him with his mittens all over the internet. That was the that was the positive side of that, right? And then you have also a darker version of it, which is, for instance, and that's what Thomas Vorzak had been witnessing at the time, you know, with the Boston bomber, you know, the cult to him, you know, you had the, all those people sharing photos of the bomber at the time. And so you have all these m- movements that are, somewhat invisible because everything goes so fast and Thomas now has been during COVID focusing on Zoom also the things that happen you know for instance you know trials public trials you could see trials on Zoom and he took photos of that and photos of funerals on Zoom and all the kind of things that would have happened privately at the time you know before COVID and suddenly was exposed um, because of COVID and thanks or because of Zoom and I think that's the case of a photographer who decided or who suddenly turned his attention to the other photographs or the other, you know, the video, the social media, all that world that is for us to look at, but that is so hard to analyze because it is a little bit, um, it's very ephemeral. If you don't pay attention, it just disappears, but it is such an important moment and a, a visual, a visual revolution that is at once bringing good change and, and, you know, terrible, also terrible change. You're also saying that people are much more engaged. In what way would you say that there is a new relationship between the, the photographer and the viewer? I think we are at a turning point that is going to be slow. We're, gonna, we're looking for the answers, but it's taking quite some time. You know, what is the photographer, the professional photographer, what is he here for now in a moment when indeed videos and photographs are taken all day long by people who are not professional photographers so what is the role of the author in a sense what is the role of the uh, of the artist also because i think here we're talking a lot about the photojournalists more than about the photographer who's not here to talk about the news but more about a catharsis right more like a theater play in a sense what we call the citizen journalism is more something that the photojournalist has to deal with But someone like Antoine Dagata, for instance, uh, who's a French photographer, has interestingly been becoming, you know, during COVID, he turned his camera, it's a thermal camera, he turned, he went to hospitals and took photos of COVID that are quite incredible and that I don't think anyone else than Antoine could have taken. The project is called Virus, and it's now a book and it's a projection. He showed his work at the Opera. I think there is still something that the author or the whatever we want to call him, the, prefer, the professional photographer, a, a vision, if you like, of the world that I don't think is going to disappear. This is still going to be there. The artist will remain the artist. And I'm not saying this in an elitist way, but more in a purpose in life. I feel like some people like Antoine Dagata 
or many others and the younger generation also that's what they need to do it is a need right it is a vision and it is a need and it is a purpose i don't know that the people who take photos you know of something happening near them is something you know it's a moment in time i don't know that it's a purpose so there is always going to be in my view that that distinction between you know these two kinds of being a witness as you say rightly it's different documenting a moment in time when it's happening and actually building a project in the long run an artistic project that's inspired by what's going on around you but that it's not just about the moment at the same time because of what we described the digital revolution smartphones social media there tends to be a, a saturation of the visual space. And that seems to have triggered a form of indifference or disregard towards some imagery, including violent imagery, and more generally, a distrust of photography's alleged truth, as you were saying you know, at the beginning of this conversation, Fred. Mm. And this itself has favored the spread of misinformation globally and the rise of conspiracy theories which are obviously threatening freedom and democracy, as was strongly evidenced by the recent U.S. election, for instance. So, Fred, you are a strong advocate for a clearer code of ethics in photography so that image-based media can be more credible and used in more helpful ways. So could you give us an example of what you think both the photographer and the viewer should do when making or looking at or sharing images? I do with my students, for example, what I call interactive portraits. So you can make a portrait of somebody and with a digital camera or cell phone, you could turn the camera around, you could show them the portrait and then ask them the question, does this represent you? Is this you? And then record their voice as they respond. So then the reader can click on the sound icon and hear what the person thinks of it. And so then you could use that as well, you know, with people who do not have agency in society, who do not have the power, somebody who might be homeless or a refugee, you know, people, you know, who, who, who may be poor, you know, who don't normally have major voices in media, they can actually say, this is not me, or this is me, or, you know, I'm, I am homeless now, but three weeks ago I had a job. And I don't see that in the picture. I don't see my dignity. So they have a, a chance to speak back. And then maybe you can click on the photographer's name and get their code of ethics. You know, my ethics is I never change Im images in post-production. I don't manipulate. You know, or, or my ethics is, you know, I'm a fashion photographer. I never work with people who are uh, terribly underweight because it's not healthy. I won't work with them. You know, whatever your code of ethics might be, because I think it's extraordinary with the digital environment how many things you could do differently than before to correct some of the problems we've had in the in the field that people, for the most part, do not do. So I, I developed a, a kind of Four Corners software. It's a fourcornersproject.org, where each corner of the photograph, you hide certain kinds of information. So the you know, bottom right, the, the reader could roll over it with a cursor or a mouse and see the credit and the caption and the code of ethics of the person in one or two sentences. The bottom left, they can get the backstory. What was actually going on around the hundredth of a second? When I curated and wrote the history of Magnum, you know, I realized there were 400 photographs. It was about 40 years of world history. 
And then I realized that if each photograph was made in about a hundredth of a second, I was only representing four seconds of world history with 400 photographs. That's nothing. So I think that we should be a little bit modest and realize that the photograph has a backstory. It has context. The upper left corner is related imagery. So you could show a photograph of, of the person a year before, or you could show the house they live in, or the street they live in, or video, uh, or you know something else. And the upper right is links to other websites that you know if you're photographing you know a war, you could show the history of the country in the link. You could do all kinds of things. So you could contextualize, but it all comes down to the photographer becoming the author of the image, not the producer who supplies it to somebody else, but the author who's responsible for the contextualization, for the relationships with the subjects, and is able to open it up in different ways from before. You know, and when I talk about, for example, interactive portraits, some professionals tell me, you're taking away my power. No, I said, I'm giving you more power. You can collaborate with your subject and get their point of view. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you do about the male heterosexual gaze? You know, when you make portraits, I said, well, ask the person, you know, the subject, is this me? And they could respond. And that way you do a lot to kind of rectifying the problem of, you know, imposing your power, imposing your preconception, your, your cultural arrogance. You, you, you could open it up. You could do it differently. And there are many, many, you know, different experimental projects you know, to take Magnum, you know, Philip Jones Griffiths, Vietnam Inc., Jim Goldberg's Rich and Poor, what Pauline was talking about with Thomas Dorjak uh, using the Instagram photography. There are many people who've worked other in alternative ways. So my sense is that the alternative now must become more and more the mainstream because the mainstream has, you know, also has to correct its own problems. But there are so many other strategies than just what we have thought of traditionally in terms of making photographs. Yeah, I, I would agree with Fred and say that, you know, Magnum has been this past few months, as you know, you may have read, uh, thinking a lot about those questions of ethics and, uh, you know, the old world of photography and the new world of photography and how things that were acceptable at the time, you know, the othering, what we call the othering, take photos of the other without really questioning so much the ethics of that. I think that many photographers, including many women photographers, in fact, have thought about this. Susan Mazelas, first and foremost, has always been talking about collaboration. It's about collaborating with your subject, you know, in the way she did with Prince Street Girls and Carnival Strippers, in fact, doing pretty much what Fred is talking about, also recording their experience, recording, you know, their side of the story so that it's not just Susan Mazelas looking at the life of others, even if they are women, because, of course, it doesn't matter so much it's still another person right i mean it's all the, the, the questions are it's a i think it is one of the most complex questions to answer can you photograph someone who is not from your community can you photograph someone who whose experience is so far away from yours which had been okay you know diane arbus i mean you can look at all those photographers in the past whose work is entirely based on the life of others and that was fine and in fact it was thought are thought to be, you know, the most appealing and the most interesting and arresting kind of of work in in many ways. And now people like Caroline Drake, for instance, uh, at Magnum, Caroline has been thinking a lot about that question of can I can I even 
talk about anything else than myself and my own experience now. You know, she, she really struggles with the idea. And in fact, all her past bodies of works between internet and her new book, uh, Knit Club, they're all about asking the subject to collaborate with her. And in that sense, and also mostly women, the, the subjects are women. So there's that, you know, way of dealing with this, of that, you know, to go and photograph and collaborate and have a very long relationship. You know, it's about months and years spent with the subjects. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have someone like Bruce Gilden, who says, I photograph whoever I want, as long as they're comfortable. That's pretty much, you know, he says he would never take a photograph of someone who doesn't want to be photographed. But he says, you know, this is about my gut and this is about people who I feel like I am related to, that I feel like I'm there, you know, in a bit like Diane Arbus, in fact, he compares that, you know, that, that approach of, you know, they are freaks just like me. And so I'm taking photographs of myself. These are self-portraits and I, I do this respectfully. I befriend many of them. So you still, there is still, I think, a lot of room com for conversation and debate around this question of representation and, and who's allowed to take photos of whom. I think the key word, of course, in all this is the respect, but, you know, each photographer is going to have another conception of what respectful means, right? You know, um, and I, for me personally, I think this is a very complicated, very fragile theme because where do you draw the line? Can you only take photos of the people who are like you? I think is a very dangerous, very dangerous thing. I think you could just add to that also, and I agree with Pauline, the transparency what is your working strategy as a photographer? You know, I arrived in Tokyo yesterday that, you know, this is who I am. It's not pretending that I'm the authority on Tokyo, wherever you might happen to be. There's a kind of humility and modesty and honesty, transparency in, in the work. So I'm all for, you know, both outside people and inside people, because going back to it, I think, you know, I would love to see people in the United States, for example, come from other countries and tell us what's going on in this country. You know, look at it. How does it compare to your country, the healthcare system, education? What are we doing wrong and right uh, to do it? We, we need multiple perspectives, not just insiders, outsiders as well. But be transparent in terms of who you are, where you're coming from, what your strategy is and so on. And then I think, you know, the, the reader can contextualize it, look at it on that basis and move forward. And I think in the issue of respect, one mistake we do make is that we respect too much people in power and celebrities, that sometimes we have to disrespect certain people who do the wrong things in the world, you know, that we can't always make respectful images of people in power just because they have power that we have to be able to, you know, whether it's with diptychs, triptychs, rolling over images to show what's actually going on, the second image, it, it's impossible, in my opinion, you know, just to simply, you know, do that, oh, you're in power, therefore a respectful image, you're homeless, I could be, you know, show you in a different way. It, it, it shouldn't work that way. It's really uh, quite amazing to see how the power of the image is stronger than ever today and that it entails a lot of responsibility on the part of both the photographer and the viewer. 
it was very interesting to hear you put in to talk about how the history of photography in the archives are needed in order to understand the challenges of society today. Because as you say it rightly, you can't move forward if you don't look backward and learn from your mistakes. It's great to hear both of you speak about how a more ethical grounding of photography and how also humility can help us improve our understanding of images and use them in a better way and have a more helpful impact on society. Because as you also rightfully said, photography in the end is a great tool to create empathy and trigger action. So thank you very much for sharing with us your perspectives. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us and listening to this episode of the Arts for Society podcast. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please know that all the projects and names of photographers that were mentioned by Pauline Vermaer and Fred Richin will be available on our website www.artsforsociety.com. Please subscribe to the Arts for Society podcast to hear the past and future episodes and follow us on social media for more information. We also want to thank Raf Papex for creating the beautiful theme of our podcast. Thank you.